Okay, what's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Greg Lukianoff, the CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and the author of tons of content that I've really appreciated over the last 24 months, specifically his book that he co-authored called The Coddling of the American Mind, which isn't a new book, but it was new to me last year and blew my mind. So Greg, welcome to the show and thanks for chatting with me. Thank you so much. And uh, th thanks for reading the book. Um, it, it, it's amazing how much, how many people were able to reach with that. Uh, and it's kind of funny in some ways, because I height and I just kind of thought it was common sense. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, Jonathan Haidt being the co-author that you wrote the book with. Yep. You know, he's great. He's a real pleasure to work with. Well, I, I think we're having him on the show after he releases his next book at some point in 2023. So uh, lots to look forward to now. You know, I read a ton of books, um, Greg, and there's always one book that stands out throughout the year. And that book, I then go and I buy about a dozen copies of just so I can pass them out to people who I think would appreciate it. And The Coddling of the American Mind was that book for me in, in 2021. Um, I just felt it to be such an important message, a message that I, I think could better the planet, better the world, you know, if people could digest a lot of what you had to say. Um, and so that was the book for 2021. And um for anybody who's not familiar, Greg, could you start with who you are and, and why you wrote The Coddling of the American Mind? Sure. Uh, my name is Greg Lukianoff. Um, I'm the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, FIRE primarily deals with free speech um, and academic freedom in higher ed, uh, but we have been expanding. We're trying to do more public education about the deep and profound philosophy around ideas like freedom of inquiry, freedom of speech, etc. Um, and I'd been working on campuses since 2001, since about a year after I graduated from law school. And I come from, I come from a, a, a fairly lefty background. I was working at the ACLU before then. I, I still, um, even though that, you know, sometimes people, when, when they want to dismiss you these days, they'll just be like, oh, you just, you know, it's conservative. It's like, I'm actually left-leaning. I'm not religious. Um, but I am completely unapologetically um, nonpartisan and pure about freedom of speech. Uh, and that's why I went to law school in the first place. Like, I, for the first amendment was why I went to law school, not the other way around. Like, and so this was always what I wanted to do with my career. And for most of my career, even though it was it was it was definitely easier to get in trouble way back in 2001 for what you said on campus than I understood. Um, like even way back then, it, it, it was surprisingly easy to get in trouble as a professor or student. Um, up until 2012, uh, students had always been the best constituency for free speech on campus. Like they got offensive jokes, they they knew to stand up for their professors, all this kind of all, all this kind of stuff. They were really reliable. And then, like lightning struck right at the end of 2013, but really more, uh, really much more noticeable in 2014. You started having students showing up who were demanding new speech codes. They were demanding new. Um, this is when trigger warnings suddenly became into the public consciousness. Disinvitations, you know, there, you know, people kind of noticed when they went after Condoleezza Rice at Rutgers. They really noticed when it started being people that they wouldn't have expected, like um, uh, Christine Lagarde at the International uh, International Monetary Fund, for example. There was a big uptick in people getting disinvited from campus for what they believed or for getting shouted down, for example. Um, and it wasn't subtle. It wasn't this slight shift. It was this very dramatic shift. And what was interesting to me as someone who, who'd struggled with depression in my own life, uh, partially, and to be frank about it, partially because the, the culture war is so exhausting and, and so nasty, 
um, that, you know, being in it all the time really kind of kind of wore on me uh, after a while. And way back in 2008, I started studying cognitive behavioral therapy. So a lot of these students who are justifying the new restrictions on freedom of speech were making an argument that was kind of medicalized. They were saying, well, we need this person not to come on campus because it's harmful, not usually not to me, but to this person over there or this constituency on campus that we care about. Mm. And I was looking at that going, oh, wow, that's like, that's a bad idea, not just for free speech, but like this is catastrophizing. This is overgeneralizing. This is fortune telling. All these things that you learn in cognitive behavioral therapy, the ways of talking yourself down in order to make your, your, uh, yourself less anxious and less depressed, it seemed like students were really talking themselves up. And I'm like, not only is this, are these habits dysfunctional for uh, academia, um, where they have to be the most accepting of, of, of controversial ideas, but they also are the kind of ideas that are gonna make people anxious and depressed if they really believe in them. So I, I told this to my, my new friend at that time, Jonathan Haidt, in 2014. We wrote a cover story for The Atlantic in 2015 uh, that I wanted to very boringly title, arguing towards misery, but which which kind of conveys what I'm talking, talking about a little better. Um, and so we published this article. It, uh, it did way better than we ever expected. Um, and then everything got way, way worse <laughs> on campus. Uh, and at first, Height and I weren't talking about doing a book about it because we were, we were happy with the original feature article. But not only did things get so much worse on campus for freedom of speech, the numbers started coming in for mental health. And Height and I kind of predicted a little, a little subtle, you know, curve. Maybe things go down a little bit for, and it was, uh, you know, we're talking about doubling of suicide rates for for girls uh, from 2008 to about 2018. Uh, you're talking about just a huge explosion of mood disorders, anxiety, and depression, just like we predicted, just way worse than we ever thought. So we got together, we came up with the book, Coddling the American Mind in 2018. Uh, we try to explain six different reasons why we think that, and really it's a, it's a social science detective story about why was this generation so different? And we come up with a lot of theories and we thought it was pretty bad in 2018, but all of the trends with one exception, and I can talk about that if you want, with one exception have gotten worse since 2018. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I and mean, we're definitely going to talk about that trend. So there's a ton there to, to unpack. Thanks for, for walking us back to the origin story. And, you know, so you saw this big shift occur in 2013, 2014, your experience, students were the reliable, durable ones who could handle maybe yeah. an off-color joke or a bit of uh, fun poking at themselves, maybe. I don't know how you want to explain that. And that shift occurred really dramatically through 2013, 2014, um, and started manifesting in what you described as like disinvitations, right? You used mm -hmm. Christine Lagarde as an example. And what you're talking about is, you know, a feature keynote speaker being invited to a university, the content of what their message might be perceived to be so offensive to a certain group of people that then there was a protest, right? Organized at the school to disinvite these individuals. And, you know, Ben Shapiro is another classic who's been disinvited, you know, record number of times. Uh, Christine Lagarde, though, you, you know, I wouldn't have assumed, right? Far, far less mm -hmm. controversial, in, in my opinion. What do I know? And, you know, in, in the book, you, you very succinctly, like, describe how these disinvitations can evolve into protests, actually becoming quite violent in, in a number of instances, right, yeah. in order to protect the sanctity of the school from ideas that could be offensive or triggering. So do I have yeah. this right? 
Yeah, that, that was something that I did not see coming. Um, in 2017, while I'd heard stories about there being violent confrontations on campus relating to speech, my that was mostly in the ancient history, as far as I knew. That was the 1970s. That was the okay. 1960s in some cases. Right, right. Um, and for the first time in my career that I started seeing actual violence, um, it started around 2014 and saw some minor incidents. But then, of course, when Miley Yiannopoulos went to try to speak at Berkeley, um, that was met with a, with a full-scale riot. Um, and one of the things that we do in the book um, that we re research very carefully on the, uh, our, our uh, research, um, our chief researcher Pamela Paresky did great work on this. She she went and interviewed people. It was fantastic, um, and it was wait the, the the Berkeley riot was so much worse than even I thought. Um, it, in terms of, they are so lucky nobody was killed. Uh, you know, several people were hospitalized. Many people were assaulted. At least half a million dollars in damage. It honestly looks like a lot more. Then there were lesser known cases, like what happened to Heather McDonald, um, who wrote a book called The War Against Cops. Um, at Claremont McKenna, uh, where students actually, you know, wouldn't let anybody into the speech. They were physically blocking uh, uh, people from attending. They had to take her to another space where they found her. It's all very ugly. Um, and that didn't get as much coverage. But then, of course, up at Middlebury, this was the incident where um, Charles Murray was speaking. And the, the, the terrible irony here is that the person who actually got assaulted protecting Charles Murray is... Alison Stanger, who is one of the sweetest, most saintly people, she was there. She's she's a lefty. She was there to debate Charles Murray, but she believes in free speech, so she you know tried to defend him and got permanently injured in the in in, in the process of trying to do that. So I hadn't seen violence at this scale ever before in my career, and and it definitely indicated that something. Uh, that we're going in a very dangerous um, uh, direction. And the thing that actually made it worse than just the violence was that the next week uh, at Berkeley, and this is the home of the free speech movement as of 1964, there was an entire issue of the student newspaper, student newspaper with people defending the violence against the, the protesters. And that was scarier to me even than the violence itself. And what, one of the things they were saying was that, you know, this speaker represents violence and therefore, because this is violence, I, I, we can retaliate violently. And I'm like, don't you see that this is one, a very old idea. Um, this is an ancient idea that essentially some words have to be responded to and can only be responded to violently. But of course, it's a formula for a complete uh, downward spiral because um, of course, yeah. once you've hit them, they, 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 they can claim self-defense and vice versa. Justifiably hit back, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the shift, you know, as you describe in the book was, was defining words as violence, right? That was the shift yep. in thinking, defining ideas as violence, therefore justifying physical violence action to prevent words from being spoken, right? And there's a really cruel irony there, right? We're, we're preventing, we're preventing a, a, a speech that we perceive to be violent by executing large scale, widespread violence. And, and, you know, worth diving into the stories at Berkeley, at Middlebury that, that Greg is speaking about here, because I, as a Canadian, like maybe, or maybe, maybe if I just didn't go to Berkeley, I wouldn't know about it, but, mm -hmm. you know, very, very scary riots, you know, in protest of these. Now, the word you use to describe the reaction, I guess, as a catalyst to disinviting and, and rioting against these speakers was catastrophizing, right? You said, yeah. you know, the students tended to catastrophize you know, what could occur if this speaker were allowed to get on stage and, and share some content. Can you explain the concept of catastrophizing a little bit? 
Sure. Um, and, and there I'm borrowing from cognitive behavioral therapy. And, you know, I was, I talk about this, I'm very frank about it in the book. Um, I was hospitalized for depression back in 2007 I, as a danger to myself because I tried to kill myself. I, I, I was in a very, very bad state. Um, and during the process of recovery in 2008, I, I started doing CBT. Um, and what CBT is, is essentially you talk back to your uh, exaggerated thoughts that, 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 you know, I give the example of you go on a bad date and, you know, you come home and you say, I'm going to die alone uh, because you just, you know, and, uh, and then what you do is you write down, you know, uh, what you what you've done wrong. And you have this reference list of cognitive distortions. And these include things like catastrophizing, mind reading, that, which sound a lot like what they actually mean. And you're supposed to you know, talk yourself down by being kind of like, okay, what really happened here? It's not the power of positive thinking. I always wanna be very clear about this. It's actually just, it's the power of rationality of actually rationally looking at your own thoughts, taking a deep breath, and then realizing that really what happened was you had a bad, you had a date that didn't go as well as you thought, and you're sad about that. Um, and the amazing thing is, this is one of the most successful interventions for anxiety and depression ever devised. CBT is, has some of the best um, clinical uh, um, uh, studies on, on its effectiveness. And it's also this, you know, taps into this ancient wisdom. So catastrophizing is this idea, and we all do it to, to, to a different degree, where something, you know, relatively minor happens or even something somewhat serious, but we think it's the end of the world. Um, and what, what you see on campus, um, is this, and oftentimes it, it, it can be politicized, but it isn't always politicized. This very exaggerated sense of threat that essentially if this person speaks here, it will be a calamity, it will be a catastrophe. And the thing you always have to sort of like remind people is like, you do know that this, my Illinopolis had spoken at dozens of schools prior to this. Um, I, I even have to remind people, like, you do know that like Klan rallies have been happening in various parts of the country you know, multiple times a year for decades now. But, and that even though these are, you know, despicable people, the fact that these things happen, um, the, the best thing you could do for a lot of these cases is not respond, just ignore them. Or in other cases, like one, one of my favorite, um, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, one time um, they protested Comic-Con um, and the response of the Comic-Con uh, in, in San Diego uh, attendees was to dress up like Bender and sit with kill all human signs and just totally made fun of them. And it was it, it was great. But there is this sense that like things that wouldn't have even um, a, a previous generation of activists who believed in freedom of speech would have said that's that's not a really serious concern. You know, it's like you can show up and you can disagree with somebody or you can sh or, or you can write an op-ed saying why this person was wrong or just tell your friend not to go. Um, but now it seemed to be that that students were understanding that the mere presence of someone like that on campus was itself a calamity. Mm. Now, it resonates because, like I said, I read your book in 2021. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it resonated with me was because I found myself surrounded by various communities, various pockets of my life, where more and more often certain conversations were becoming off limits right? Yes. Um, divisions between opposing points of view were becoming deeper and deeper to the point where I felt like in a lot of the communities around me, we had lost the, the ability to have tolerant debate and just basic civil discourse, you know? Yeah. And so reading The Calling of the American Mind, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just surrounded by this right now. I didn't, I didn't go to an American university. It doesn't matter. This has now permeated 
my entire life, right? Yeah. What it, it goes through my family, through my friends, through my employees. Like, you know, I've got to be very careful about what I say and how I say it and how it's interpreted. And, you know, they say there's like three, three things that happen when you and I have a conversation. Like I say something, right? I mean to say something. So what I, what I mean is one thing. What I say is another thing. What you hear is the third thing, right? And yeah. those three things are occurring simultaneously. We rarely get our points across effectively as a, as a consequence. So, you know, qu questions for you pulling on that thread, sure. you know, I mean, why did, did this change begin in 2013, 2014? Like what was the, what was the lead up to that? What occurred in, you know, 20, 2008, 9, 10, 11 to get to this shift in 2013, 2014. And then now, you know, seven years later, what's, mm -hmm. how has this shifted, you know, positively, negatively based on your experience? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, uh, so in the book, we talk about six different causal factors. Um, we've even added a seventh since then of why we think uh, the generation hitting campus around 2014 was so different. Uh, one thing that we discovered is it's actually considered to be a different generation. They're not millennials. They're Generation Z, um, born uh, 1995 or 1996 or after. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting because when you do generational studies, there's usually, you know, relatively you know, um, smooth changes from generation to a generation um, in terms of attitudes. This is a very rapid discontinuity. So, so something something really was quite different, quite fast. And even though we talk about six different causal threads, um, the one that we think sped everything up that made this all happen so fast um, was uh, social media. And because this was the first generation of kids who had the iPhone in their pocket, um, and they uh, uh, and, and they were on social media since, since they were little. Mm. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that this created trends that weren't already there, but we are saying that it sped things up. And the other okay. factors we talk about are uh, po uh, political polarization, which also was sped up by social media a lot. We talk about paranoid parenting. The most fascinating one, by the way, and this was the, it's some, it, researching with someone who's equally curious about this stuff can be such a pleasure. Um, because uh, we did a lot of original research, and when we didn't know a topic, we went and interviewed a ton of experts on it. Um, lack of free play was something we didn't expect to be a whole chapter onto itself, but lack of time for uh, for independent, you know, self-directed play was something yeah. that uh, is so fundamentally different about this generation. And and it, one thing I always, as someone who comes from the bottom quartile, bottom half, depending on what part, part of my life we're talking about, we always want to be clear. We're trying to figure out what was so was so different about people hitting college um, at the time. The, the, the what's going on in people in the in the bottom uh, bottom half or bottom even three quartiles to a degree uh, is quite is quite different. And we we, we refer people to Robert Putnam's. Uh, book our kids on that. Uh, but we talk about uh, lack of free play and why college, two of the things that are going on there uh, is hyper-bureaucratization. You have this, mm. you, you know, you, there are more um, administrators on campus uh, than there are professors. By, and right now there are more administrators at Yale. There are almost as many administrators at Yale as there are students now. Um, if you take administrators and faculty, they outnumber the number of students at Yale right now. So hyper-bureaucratization, fear of liability, lack of viewpoint diversity among these administrators all plays a role. And then that's when you come to the final one, that, that when you talk to sort of more conservative audiences, they always want you to go straight to ideology. I'm like, no, no, there's actually a lot going on here. It's not just ideology, but you'd be lying if you said ideology wasn't part of it. And it's, this, it's these different ideas about social justice um, that start hitting uh, heart, starting students. 
one thing that wasn't in the book, the reason why I think the students came in with such a sort of like intense belief in this and started hitting camps around 2014. Um, and th is that I that from working on campus in 2010, partially due to some high profile cyberbullying cases, actually, and a lot of them turned out to not really follow that, uh, that story all that well. And, and the most famous one actually involved a college student whose rights were violated. Um, Tyler Clementi, um, whose student actually broke uh, student actually broke the law spying on him. Um, but across the country, um, every state at some point or other passed anti-bullying laws. And to a degree, you know, fighting bullying, absolutely. Like uh, people do not need to be as physically cruel as we were when we were kids or before that. I think that particularly for LGBT kids, like it's about time to stand up against bullying. But unfortunately, a lot of those curriculum um, end up doing what we call in the book, the three great untruths. They teach people that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, that essentially you can be really damaged by words. Um, always trust your feelings, um, that essentially if, if, if you feel something, it means something important has to be done. And the last one, that life is, is a battle between good people and evil people. And we, in the book, we talk about these as being the three bad ideas that we are implicitly telling students that will give them worse lives. Yeah, I mean, and that speaks to, you know, belief that, that we're fragile, right? Mm -hmm. Which is absolutely false. We're an incredibly adaptable species and a durable one. That's why we're still here, despite yep. ourselves, right? Maybe. Um, despite nature trying to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> ourselves trying to, yeah. Okay, so I want to I I unpack a bit there. So, you know, social media being a big trend, this was, I think, as you describe it, the first like sort of native generation, social, right. social media native generation. You know, I've had Dr. Anna Lemke on the show, and we really dug into a lot of the just the complications that occur from behavioral addictions and those those dopamine reactions and all this stuff. So, you know, myself, and my audience just dove into that recently. You know, political polarization, a trend which I have to assume has only accelerated massively speaking. I mean, this oh, speaks yeah. more to what I shared about the divisions of my communities, to be honest with you lack of free play mm -hmm. and and that is is learning lessons the hard way sometimes right like allowing your kids to fall down hurt themselves and recognize that they're anti they're they're going to be all right most of the time right but or, even how to just navigate everyday situations with their friends um yes and, and that example. social element it, it there's this big particularly in the anti-bullying movement but but even before then there was this idea that you always have to have intermediated relationships you always have to go look for an adult yeah um, and while their heart's in the right place with that ultimately what it means is that if it's a difficult conversation and it's only always intermediated between someone else you don't develop that that normal sense of having to na navigate social situations you know what's crazy about that greg is that is that, you know, so I have a bunch of core values at my company that I demand my employees embrace. And, you know, we charge forward with this. One of them is solutions focused. And what, what that means to me is, is like, you know, we, we run a small business. We're running into problems for a living. That's what small businesses really do, right? You run the brick walls every day. And so let's not complain about that. Let's acknowledge we signed up for this. And it's our job to build a ladder, find a way around, or just blast right through, right? But that durability and that problem solving mentality is so important to me. Yet I have three little boys and, you know, I have two little boys. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's hard to watch. My oldest is five now. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now you make me feel guilty. That I don't have any pictures of my kids. <laughs> I, so, I am that dad. I'm always like, look, I love it. It's so, yeah, it's the best. 
Um, and my oldest is five. So he's now just entering. I want to share the school we've got him with you because I'd love to get your thoughts on this. But, you know, he's entering the world, right? Like yeah. he will every day now progressively be less influenced by me and, and, and my wife and more influenced by the world. And, you know, so I'm very conscious of the ticking clock that I have now to arm him with the tools to be able to navigate challenge on his own, right? When he's faced with that bully, when he's faced with that, that criticism or that, that scary situation, whatever it is, like, does, does, can he trust his instincts? Does he have the tools in his tool belt to be able to now navigate adversity? It's like maybe the most important trait. I preach it and I pour the Kool-Aid in my company yet simultaneously, I know when I'm being an overproductive dad and it's often, it's hard, right? Like it's very yeah. hard. Oh yeah. That, my wife is the one who always reminds me of my values. Like I, I wrote something called catching up with coddling. Um, that was before I started doing the official afterward with height, which we've been running mostly at, at persuasion.com. Um, and I talk a lot about like, look, and I wanted to have this more in the book. Um, and I got talked out of it, but I has always regret that. I'm like, I want to be clear. I'm an anxious parent. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying this because, of, oh, it just comes easy to me. I'm, just, I'm tough and I don't worry about my kids at all. Nonsense. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I and, and I have to, and the way I try to practice what I preach though, and also to take what I, because this was a learning experience for me doing this book. You know, for example, like when my uh, when my son says he he's scared and he doesn't want to finish a show, I'll let, I'll sit down next to him. I'm like, no, I think we should watch it to the end. Um, and just little little interventions like that can make such a big difference because so often the how horrible that show was going to be um, in your head at the moment that you're most scared of it, mm. and how horrible it ends up being at the end. It, it, they're just not the same experience and you have to really experience it. I mean, how many times in life to this day as adults, do we still have the experience like, oh God, I have to have this conversation. It's going to be yes. really awkward. Yes. And then you have it and you're like, oh, okay, that was, that was it great. Was fine, it was, right? it was, or, or in some cases it was, it was really well received. It was way, way less scary than we thought it was going to be. But we, we catastrophize exactly as you said, right? It's like some yep. kind of innate thing, you know, you know, so, so my, my, after reading your book, you know, my wife and I sat down and put together a bit of a strategic plan for our parenting complete with identifying core values and like a mission statement, you know, I love it. If we're successful as parents, what does that look like? You know, what do our kids value when they grow old and yeah, and all of this, and there's a handful of stuff in there, like, you know, creativity. And then I, you know, I feel like it's probably the most important skill set and confidence to implement your creativity. And, but an important one for us was the relationship between hard work and reward you know, defined yeah. as either resilience, however you want to, but the importance of doing hard things, right? And how do you teach a five-year-old the importance of doing hard things? Like it's, it's a hard thing to do, right? Yeah. Um, so we found this, this school in the town that I live in, it's called Nature Learners. The entire curriculum is outside. There's no oh, outdoor I, space. I'm so jealous. I really wanted to do an outdoor school. We didn't have one that was uh, close enough to us. Um, it's but amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's very unsupervised, you know, and, and, um, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So being outdoors 12 months of the year is a resilience test in itself, right? Yeah. It's cold, rainy, wet, snowy, all those things. And so, you know, I think it's a good first step, but when we found that it was when I was reading your book and I was like, so the message was so clear, like we need to do this for at least a year or two, right? At least, at least a year or two to have, you know, a lot of, you know, increased free play, unsupervised play, problem solving on his own with his buddies. It's, you know, kindergarten through grade seven, all in one cohort running wild through the forest. Um, it's pretty rad, pretty rad. That's, that sounds amazing. And, and I'm, 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 uh, I'm jealous. I went into this, um, 
uh, before reading the book, I, I was definitely very kind of dismissive of Montessori, for example, or, um, or, or Reggio Emilia, which is kind of like very similar to Montessori. And after talking to all these experts, I, I, I was like, okay, no, actually, this makes a lot of sense to me now. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the really bracing things. I, I, live, on, I live in Washington, D.C. I live on Capitol Hill. And uh, the I was actually here for January 6th, by the way, which was not boring. Um, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty scary. But the um, uh, but one of the things that, that came through from all the experts we talked to on parenting um, was the uh, was the need for unstructured time. And meanwhile, everybody I like uh, in, in my neighborhood that were uh, that were going sending their kids to Montessori school, they would have them scheduled from you know, six o'clock in the morning till they go to bed at night. And that's just really bad for you. It makes it harder to deal with ambiguity. It makes it harder to deal with open open time. Um, and, it, and it really undermines your ability to, to learn how to navigate social situations. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so you, you mentioned January 6th. Let's go yeah. there for a minute because, sure. you know, what I didn't I, expect to, but <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's the growing up of, of the situations that you've described, right? The, sure. you know, maybe catching it around 2013, 2014 in university as well, that, that population is going to continue to grow up and eventually, you know, run the companies, run the government like this is, so, you know, what's your forecast then, Greg, if, if we've developed a high intolerance for ideas that we disagree with, we yeah. perceive that as, as violent danger and needs to be eliminated at any cost. I mean, this is what's materialized, right? At, at the university yeah. level, going back seven, eight years, you know, um, how does this come of age and what are you seeing today and what do you hope for, I guess? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, it's kind of funny because like definitely for most of the dire predictions that I would have heard 10 years ago, as bad as things seem to be getting on campus, I'd still be kind of like, well, you know, um, no, that's overwrought. No, it's, we're, we're not going anywhere in that direction. But the last six years have definitely made me much more worried about where we're, where we're headed. Um, it's kind of funny because when I started at FIRE, like I'm, I'm politically left-leaning, I'm, I'm not religious, um, and I defend, uh, I, I happily defend people who are uh, evangelical Christians, you know, who are, who are much, much more right-wing. Um, and I've never had, you know, any issue with that. But at the same time, I'd do a lot of radio and, and I'd have people to have these incredible stereotypes of people on the left or the right. Um, and I'd be like, no, I know, to be clear, that person you're thinking of does exist, but they're not very many of them. And, and most people on the left or most people on the right are much more reasonable than, than they think. I sometimes joke, and I'm only half joking at this point, that it was as if we spent the last 20 years trying to actually be the cartoon versions of ourselves in, ter- in terms of American politics. I, I think that the current state that, that we're in, um, we call it in the book, we call the polarization, actually we call it the polarization, polarization cycle. I've, got, I've convinced John that we should really have called it the polarization spiral, which is what I wanted to call it in the first place. And that essentially, like a lot of people are trying to sort of understand, like, is the right worse? Is the left worse? And and I'm and I always have to point out, it's like, no, but it's an ecosystem. That essentially, when a lot of these crazy things happen on campus, this ends up in the sort of more conservative media, um, and that gets them scared because predicting some of the identity politics is exactly what they've been afraid of forever. It makes them more radicalized. They do something crazy, and then it makes people on on, on the left react. And so it's this it, it's this spiral. I really started to understand, like, the whole idea of turning the other cheek for the first time kind of like more profoundly, you know, um, as a as an atheist who's a fan of Jesus, like the idea of kind of like 
we have to break the cycle somehow. And at the moment, I don't think we're anywhere close to breaking the cycle. Um, it, it's gotten worse on campus. Uh, we've seen uh, 2020 was the worst year I've seen for free speech on campus in my entire career. And I'm at 21 years now. The second worst year that, that I'd, ever see, I'd ever seen for free speech on campus, 2021. And this was, and we actually have pretty good data on this now, like how many attempts there were to get professors fired. Um, it used to be unthinkable, for example, that a tenured professor would ever get fired for teaching or for research or for speech. We've got 27, 28 cases now of professors getting fired who are tenured, which is supposed to be basically impossible. And give me some examples, Greg, what are, what are professors being fired for? Oh my God. Um, so one of the tenured cases, um, this was this was a case, I think this was the, the was this a Columbian exchange one? Because to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm going through 508 cases in my head because that, sure. that's how many we've seen since 2015. I think one of the ones where, where the professor was tenured and he was fired was a case where a professor um, was, uh, he was talking about in class, the Columbian exchange at a school called St. John's. Um, and this is the and the Columbian Exchange is the idea of like when when the Europeans discovered the New World and they, and they started up the trade um, in uh, in a class uh, in a history class and they talked about well let's discuss the pluses and minuses of the Columbian uh, Columbian Exchange like and with a very open ended idea like was this worth it um, and this led to complete explosion on campus because it was reinterpreted and I've seen the whole slide deck um, as saying you're saying that that slavery could be justified and that slavery might be a good and it's like that's nuts <laughs> like that that's catastrophizing that's taking what someone was actually saying and coming up with the least charitable way of explaining it and then deciding to ruin this guy's career. Uh, we have a case right now involving a professor named Jason Kilborn you know that's been going on for a while. Uh, this was a case in which he was teaching an anti-discrimination law class. Um, anti I'm a lawyer, um, and anti-discrimination law is all about people being racially harassed. In the exam question at the end of it, um, this is University of Chicago, Illinois, um, he, uh, rather than actually put racial epithets in it, he did N blank, B blank, and he put in parentheses, um, uh, epithets directed at, at, at African-Americans and, and, and women. Um, and he was still had the book thrown at him. They, he was still suspended. He was still, uh, you know, told to see a psychiatrist and, and, and put on leave. Um, and what's amazing is, of course, on campus for decades, we made this very sensible academic distinction between, you know, it, it's truly one thing to call someone an epithet. But if you're talking about it academically in class, the Supreme Court, you know, they, they don't they don't censor, they at least at least not didn't used to, you know, censor the words that were that were in there. So that there was this um, and it, it just seems like this so incredibly uncharitable thing to take a, a, a professor in this case who was actually trying to be as sensitive as possible. But even that wasn't good enough. Do you think some of that is motivated by the, the points that call them social justice warriors can score and, and almost like street cred they, yeah. they may get for canceling somebody, right? Yeah. Regardless of the authenticity of the claim, it's more about, you know, I was able to get this evil person canceled and don't yeah. worry about who they are. Trust me, they were bad here, you know? Yeah. So it's almost like a, a sport 
it's it's kind of crazy in that regard. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's one of these things where I always try to be as sympathetic and come from the student's perspective as much as possible. But at a certain level, they're being so uncharitable and so um, cruel in some cases, ru ruining people's careers, you know, forcing them to get fired. That there is partially a dynamic here where if you feel righteous, um, if you, and particularly if you feel like what you're working towards is a, uh, a, a good of infinite, uh, you know, infinite degree, that you feel justified in, in any action you take, no matter how ultimately mean-spirited, short-sighted it might be. And I, and I see a lot of this. I talked about, I wrote, my first book was Unlearning, was called Unlearning Liberty. And this came out in 2012. And I talk about this as having a hero narrative about yourself as opposed to a scholar narrative. And at the time I was like, we should be teaching people in higher ed, of course, to have scholar narratives about themselves, that they don't understand the world all that well. They need tools to better understand it, all this kind of stuff. But if instead, like there's this kind of uncompromising black and white way of looking at the world, that sounds something that you should maybe you should be be doing more at at, 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 at um, a seminary, <laughs> you know, but not in higher ed. And for whatever reason, we've let this dynamic um, dominate too much of the discussion in in an environment where it should actually be considered sort of a cheap dodge to meaningful discussion rather than a replacement for it. So if if we continue to evolve these events and these trends, it crafts a pretty dystopian picture. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to be an optimist, you know, and I'll, I'll bet all day long on human ingenuity back to some comments we had towards the beginning of this conversation, humans are an anti-fragile, durable species and very adaptable. And we've persevered through amazing challenges in the past. I want to bet that we can resolve this one. My question therefore, Greg is, do you see any green shoots? I mean, mm -hmm. at the front end of this conversation, you talked about how yourself and your co-author, Jonathan Haidt, uncovered this, this massive um, sort of hockey stick curve in mental health cases at universities, right? Now, yeah. I, I know when I'm not doing well psychologically, I'm, a, I'm a, just a, a worse person, right? I'm, I'm, I contribute less value. I'm short-tempered with my wife or my kids. Um, I don't lead my team effectively. My my contribution is just negative, right? If if I haven't taken care of my psychology first, if my mental health isn't in order. And so are you seeing any green shoots that we could therefore focus on and nurture, right? Yeah. For the upcoming generations. And I mean, I'm asking you as a father of three young boys, I'm asking sure. you as just a civilian, you know, how I can make a contribution or what we could. But what, what are some positive trends that, that are occurring early in life that we could then focus on and nurture to ensure we're, we're correcting course? I think it has to be up us to come up with more of those solutions. Um, I don't think there are nearly enough solutions. I do think that some of the movements um, towards uh, different aspects of changing the way we do K through 12 education. I, I think the school, I think the green shoot um, uh, that you brought up, like the idea of outdoor school is a, is a great idea. Um, I think that figuring out alternative ways to do higher education, not because we're ever going to uh, or we'd even want to get rid of the Yales and the Stanfords and the Harvards, um, but partially because they feel like they're the only game in town, can actually argue that if you want your kids to be secure forever, um, get them into this school and uh, by hook or by crook or and, um, you know, uh, donate to us massive amounts of money to increase your kids chances of getting in. Um, 
it's led to situations where you have the massive bureaucratization. What we need are alternatives that could actually compete with, with, the, with the big institutions. Um, I mean, I, I think about having a program where essentially it's like a competition to get your bachelor's. If, we were, if, if you want to make this the most competitive things, thing in the world, then by all means, let's come up with some, uh, some new business model in order to, let, to, to tell employers that these are truly the best and the brightest and hardest working of students. Um, that at the moment, American higher education is a very, very rough um, promise of, of, of high quality uh, future, uh, future employees. So I do think that actually, particularly since there are entrepreneurs and investors out there, um, I think there are, there are a lot of business ideas that could actually help with the educational system that could actually introduce some of this anti-fragility um, at an earlier age. Uh, I do think that the one trend that I've seen that has improved that I mentioned at, at, at the top was that there have been laws passed uh, on a state level uh, uh, trying to protect students, uh, young people's uh, rights to, you know, if they're like walking home from school, that they're not, that their parent, the, the, the police aren't going to call their parents, you know, they're not going to have the police called on them or get, get arrested for that because those cases were happening for a long time. You know, like people, uh, mom, mom was working at McDonald's, kid was playing um, in, in the park, you know, right, right next to it. And, you know, she, she gets uh, sent to public services. Um, so I think that there are some green shoots, particularly regarding protecting childhood and childhood play, but there, at this point in 2022, there aren't nearly enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Idaho was one of those states that passed um, legislation. I think it was even called like the free range kids. Like it was yes. something very descriptive. That's My our friend Lenore Skenazy. Um, I, I actually put, uh, I, I, I helped with that organization. Wow. I introduced Lenore, Jonathan Haidt, and da Daniel Shuckman to each other. Um, and, and they, they launched uh, this, this uh, group called Let Grow um, that, uh, that we talk a lot about in the book. And they really are pushing for, you know, let's have uh, a lot of what we remember about our childhoods are things that are nearly impossible now, but it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny, the way I heard about that, Greg, was my brother-in-law just moved to Idaho, just outside of Boise. And my wife and I, you know, we, my family's dual, we could go north or south if we opt to, we're in Canada now. And we've had a conversation really consistently recently about, you know, if and when we might move south. And um, so I called my brother-in-law and said, why did you choose Idaho? And he sent me a link to the video of uh, that legislation being announced. I thought, oh, fascinating, yeah. fascinating. So, you know, another thing you touched on there was, was the, the, the lack of competitive competition for big institutions, universities, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, an important data point there that you mentioned earlier was the ratio of, of administrators to students, right? And if you factor oh, yeah. administrators and faculty, there's actually more employees than there are students. And what occurs in that scenario is that now you, you, you know, you got to run a business, right, to manage all that overhead, right? You got to bring in enough income to employ everybody. And if the administrators are the ones protecting their own jobs, you know, they'll make sure the product is what the consumers want. So therefore, if students demand less of this and more of that, they're more likely to get it, even if it's not in their best interest, because universities a business has got to keep the customers happy more so than a educational institution that is purposed to make people uncomfortable and question things, right? Yeah. So how do we make big institutions irrelevant to redundant? I think as employers, maybe we stop putting value on yeah. those certificates. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely think that, you know, not hiring from the elite colleges would send a big message. I've, I've talked to employers who won't actually hire from uh, to 
uh, from Ivy's, for example, or some of the elite schools, partially because students come out um, having uh, believing in this sort of intermediated dispute situation. Um, and what, what this means in the real world is that uh, even the most minor of, of, of uh, tensions between uh, students and employee, between employees uh, and managers go, go to human resources, they go to HR. Um, and I actually wish that some of these employers who are saying, I will now not hire from those schools would make sure that everybody in the world knew that. Because once, um, you know, Harvard and Yale start producing people that people don't want to hire, um, that will definitely make them change their behavior quickly. But I do at the same time, I mean, by the time you reach the point where you have um, these massive bureaucratized institutions, you know, um, at, as big as, uh, you know, like I mentioned, uh, Yale, you do need leaner, meaner approaches that actually are better utilizations, more efficient utilizations of, of money. Because, I mean, they really try uh, to, to, I mean, college uh, administrators try to make the argument with a straight face that even though, say, Sarah Lawrence College in the United States um, costs $70,000 a year, roughly, um, and that only covers about half the cost of educating a single student for a year. And I'm like, by the time you're actually trying to argue that it costs $140,000 to educate a single student, we need to start figuring out better ways to do this. Because if, if you were to give, you know, my, my co-author Jonathan Haidt um, that money, you know, uh, and, you know, 10 students to educate, you know, like you could actually have a better model just based on individual tutoring and having them read you know, 300 books or something like that. Given how top heavy these institutions have become and how much we have, uh, how much power we've given them over American society. I mean, every single one of our Supreme Court justices at one time or another um, attended either Harvard or Yale. And Harvard and Yale between the two of them have a hundred billion dollars um, in endowment at the moment and growing. Meanwhile, Yale has turned into one of the worst schools for free speech uh, in the country. So we, we need more innovative thinking. We, we, we can't have the idea that status quo is okay. And there, there have been some attempts, like University of Austin um, took a lot of flack for when, the, when um, uh, Joe Lonsdale and others tried to start up this new university in, uh, in Austin. Um, but it, I think everybody should be applauding it. Will, will it work out? Will, um, will everything go smoothly? Will, could it actually become its own kind of echo chamber? All of this is possible, but we should be applauding people who are attempting to innovate um, in this space. Can you explain what the University of Austin is trying to do? Yeah, University of Austin, it was founded by uh, Joe Lonsdale, Pano Canellis, a former head of St. John's University, um, Barry Weiss, I think Steve Pinker, who's on our board of advisors, was involved in the early steps. Um, and it's trying to be a, a, a college that is what college was supposed to be, a place where that really values free speech, a place that really values academic freedom, um, that really encourages the robust discussion of ideas. And, and, um, and, and what's interesting is that a lot of the people attacking it were saying, oh, this is just going to be another conservative university. And you know, to, to their point, they're like, no, we, we, like, we very easily could have announced ourselves just as that, but that's actually not what we're going for. We're trying to get back the old model that essentially it is supposed to be a marketplace of ideas. It is supposed to engage in thought experimentation. How it will work, if it will really pan out, you know, uh, I, I hope it will. And I hope that actually it's, it's the start of a lot of different schools. Because if, and the interesting thing is like, if you could create an institution that could guarantee 
not just that you had smart people and didn't ruin them, uh, but rather had smart people um, and then improved them while they were there. Um, that, that would be amazing because I'm an employer. I, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, we, we deal with free speech, um, particularly on college campuses, but we're trying to sort of educate the whole, the whole world about the deeper philosophy bound free speech. And when I see a resume from someone from some of these elite schools, all I know is I'm getting someone who's probably pretty smart and hardworking. That's it. That's all I know. I don't know if they know statistics. I don't know if they know how to write. I don't know if they know anything about what the world actually looks like. And the idea that that all I'm getting for the for the fancy degree is, you know, pretty smart and hardworking um, uh, is stunning to me. I, I sometimes think if we had more apples to apples, that essentially we had programs that you could graduate if you actually understood uh, liberal arts updated for the modern world that would include things like statistics, um, I think that would be much more attractive to employers. No kidding. Well, I, I can speak to that. I mean, okay. I, I can't remember the last time I considered post-secondary education on a resume, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. It's like the last thing I look at these days. Good. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um, Look, Greg, it's been a pleasure. I know we're bumping up against the clock, so I'm going to let you go, but I really appreciate your time. It's, uh, you know, this is, this is why right now, why everybody should start a podcast because you get to read a book, love the book, talk to the author about the book. That's why. This is why I love what I get to do here. So thanks so much for your time, Greg. It was great, great chatting with you. Thanks so much. And, and thanks again. All the books that you bought, a, a little bit of that goes to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. So we really appreciate that. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.